I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. If I get the times correctly, you will have this episode released literally on New Year's Eve. Actually, we will release it on midnight as we always do. So while people will be uh, watching fireworks and reminiscing about the past year, I'm here reminiscing about what happened on slow-mo last year. And as you see behind me, uh, 2023 was a year where I actually gave myself the liberty to finally treat myself better, to finally not just be driven by my mission, which was taking me all over the world every day of the year almost, to building a home. So I allowed myself to indulge in my hobby of aquariums and plants, and I built a place that feels a lot like what I wanted to be in. There were moments in this year where I actually allowed myself to reflect deeply on topics that really mattered to me and make decisions that either have already changed my life or will, I'm sure, change my life going forward. It's been a tough year in many, many, many ways. I openly tell the world that this has been the first in many years, maybe 13, 14 years, where I actually felt a pain in my heart that I wasn't able to deal with because of the state of the world. It took me a lot of time to revisit all that I teach about happiness in order to find my stable mindset again. It was also a year here on Slow Mo where several guests have stopped me in my tracks in their conversations to get me to reflect on topics that really made a difference to me. I hope they did as well make a difference uh, to you. In this episode, I will visit five of them. Just because they were personal nuggets of wisdom, I would probably recommend that you share as well your own nuggets of wisdom, because I'm sure that some guests that may have not affected me the same way might have affected you in a way that requires your reflection just as we speak and prepare for the new year. The first of those episodes that got me really thinking was my conversation with my dear, dear friend, wonderful human being, uh, Kagi Danlop. Kagi is a a TV personality. She's a singer. She's a, a podcaster. She is now an author, of course, in 2023 of her book, Saturn Returns. And in our conversation, Kagi, with her typical beautiful purity, brought to my attention Uh, the idea of the astrological side of the cycles of our life, if you want. And with all due respect, I'm not the craziest person about astrology. I do believe there is a systemic cycle to things. I do believe that there is a possibility that the location of the stars affects our personalities or emotions or whatever. But I don't really uh, align with things until I find the scientific side of them. And so, you know, I don't yet find a reasonable explanation for how those things work. But I will say when 
Kagi spoke about Saturn returns and the cycles that we go through in our lives because of the positioning of the stars and specifically in her approach, the, uh, the position of Saturn. It really got me anchored in the idea of the seasons of our lives. And, you know, I speak about that publicly quite often because as we navigate our lives, we need to learn to not only reflect and, and design our life based on our uh, needs and perceived needs, but uh, we need to notice that those needs change, our own personalities change, our own making changes based on the season of our life. Uh, so here's a, a clip from that conversation, episode number 230. If you're feeling changes in your own life, that would be a wonderful episode to revisit with Kagi Dandrup. I was going to say that it's quite a female trait, but I don't necessarily know if that's true. But I would say that women are more inclined to shapeshift and alter themselves in relationships. Exactly. I'm going to make a sort of gender generalization there. And so within that, we can abandon ourselves quite easily because we've been taught to, been conditioned to. And it's something, you know, this idea that women are to be chosen, not choosing. Mm that we only kind of come alive once taken off the shelf. So within that, we are constantly thinking of how we are going to alter ourselves. But what I've recognized is that actually all those times that I did do that and self-abandoned, somewhere down the path, I realized that this wasn't my path. And it wasn't the other person's fault because I'd done it. But to go back and find your own path, it becomes harder the further along you go. And so, you know, unconditional love and unconditional tolerance, it's like, I call it a bittersweet victory because when we are in something that is unloving mm -hmm. and that, you know, we're with someone that isn't right for us, it's not necessary to say that they're better or they're worse but they're just not right for us. The nuances of why certain people work together are like often beyond our comprehension. But to be able to say, this doesn't meet my non-negotiables. And non-negotiables sounds like quite a harsh term when we're speaking about the realms of love, but it's so crucial. And to be able to check in with yourself and be like, this is not meeting me, meeting me where I need to be met. And sometimes loving someone means letting them go. But the bittersweet victory in that is when we recognize that we've chosen ourselves. And that's something it took me a really long time to do. I actually don't think it's non-negotiables are a big thing for love at all. I mean, I mean the reality is what I talk about ex explicitly in, uh, in finding love is the idea that let's not call this love relationships are made up of so many other things it's you know love is one of them but in my view love is fundamental love is always there it doesn't have to end when the relationship ends it doesn't have to begin when the relationship begins and love itself doesn't necessarily dictate that we need to sleep together or be partners or love is underlying those things you can add intimacy to it and then become a couple or you can you know add friendships to it and and then you become really close friends right and i think the idea of non-negotiables 
are almost entirely around things other than love in the relationship. They are about things like respect. They are about things about like partnership, things like compatibility, right? And and these are n- not touching love in itself in any way. So having having non-negotiables is important. Sticking to them is difficult, but either way, they don't touch love. Love itself exists. I understand that, but I also... I also think that we create the love. So within the context of a relationship, that friction between one person saying, hey, this is what I need, and another person kind of either stepping in or not, is what creates a deeper level of intimacy and respect, which in turn are the kind of foundational concepts of love. Because when we, if we don't state them, and we self-abandon, but we don't communicate anything, that then builds contempt, resentment, and we then stop loving. We withdraw the love. I wouldn't be exaggerating if I told you that the single most impactful sentence I have absorbed in the entire series of slow-mo so far has been during my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson in episode number 250. Stephen is a philosopher, Canadian philosopher, who lived 30 years of his life attending to the dying. He now lives as a farmer, and early in the conversation, we discussed that this was one of my lifetime dreams to live off the grid and be a farmer and build my own home and, you know, all of those lovely dreams that I know for a fact I'll probably be a long time away from achieving. And Stephen went from that point to discussing how climate change is affecting our planet and how so many of the systems of the planet are breaking. Reminded me of another conversation I had with Rebecca Costa, the data analyst who wrote the book, The Fisherman's Rant. Similarly, Stephen is observing how humanity has made a few mistakes that led us to where we are here and that there is a price to be paid for us to correct this. And in his very realistic way, he wonders if we can fix it without paying a steep price. And I tend to be an optimist, and it's been on my mind quite significantly this year. As a matter of fact, 2023 was entirely dedicated for me attempting to, to really change things about our world at a very deep level, specifically from a point of view of the positioning of artificial intelligence and, and the relationship between ethics and artificial intelligence. And so I attempted to tell Stephen, but there is hope. And he said, and I quote, he said, hope is the wrong premise, Mo. When someone is dying, you don't tell them that there is hope because when you tell them there is hope, they, one, don't live the days that they have, and two, uh, they don't take the corrective action uh, to make things go better for the reality of our situation. And And I think that was a very significant statement for me. I don't believe that our world is dying. I do, however, believe that we are about to face some very interesting challenges, whether that's climate change, whether it's uh, artificial intelligence, whether it's synthetic biology, whether it is uh, economy or geopolitical challenges. And I, as I look at those, I realize that we have to be super realistic. And I think Stephen's statement was probably the one that stopped me most in my tracks 
when I heard it of all the episodes and conversations I had here on Slow Mo. I can't recommend it enough. It was a very short episode because he had another time-based commitment. And so, uh, yeah, give it some time uh, and listen to it again. Uh, episode number 250 with Stephen Jenkinson, which would allow you to maybe start the year with an anchor in reality so that you make the best out of this year for you and your loved one. I don't think we're approaching a point. I think we're there. I'm trying to be <laughs> a little yeah. kinder to the ears of my listeners. Yeah. You know, again, this is a terminology that I think I learned when I was working with dying people. Dying people would refer to their dying in the future tense constantly. When I die. Or sometimes if I die. But never I'm dying. But you see, they were all dying. Not in some nominal Buddhist sense of the term that everybody's dying all the time, which is clearly not true. But they were actually metabolically dying. And they were employing their dying time to resist the realities of dying. And that seems to be a fairly good metaphor for modernity. That we are, we are in some sense in a period where the, the onset of ruination is already occurring. And yet we talk about waiting to see and hypothetical questions like, how do we do this and do that? And I think we're better served and the world is better served if we just change the tense of all of these ruminations and start saying, how have we done thus and so? Because if you can, if you can faithfully witness to how things have come to be as they are, then the notion about what does one do in the face of this storm becomes more available because it's a response to something, not a kind of generic reactivity. It's a particular kind of, as we'd say in English, response ability. Yeah. Mm. So for me, I'm not a, a fan of hope. I'm, <laughs> I, don't, I don't find that there's any obligation necessarily among grown-ups, sentient grown-ups, to pat each other on the shoulder and reassure each other and that if we just do this and if we find some equanimity and if we just change our socks and if enough people change their socks all at once, well, you know, the globe will tip and, you know, it's, this is not how it happened and it's not how it's going to happen either. We, the truth of the matter is, it seems, you're familiar with the English poet W.H. Auden? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he has a wondrous but kind of ruinous observation he's made about modernity. He said, it seems to me that we would rather be defeated than be persuaded. Mm. And so there's a lot of circumstance now, geopolitically, socioeconomically, where the powers that be and the great sort of middle class, if you will, are there with their arms folded playing, let's see what happens. But doing that is the answer to the question, what happens? This is what happens now. Waiting to see if it's really that bad. Waiting to see if people like me are not just exaggerating or worse, and that we're secretly hopeless, and we're just vectoring our hopelessness, you know, from podcast to podcast, which I'm not hopeless at all. I'm free of the notion of hope, which is to say, you know, the last time I checked it out thoroughly, 
hope is a very much a future tense circumstance. That's where it actually operationalizes in the future. But it has immense consequence for the present. But for example, hope is completely not required to mobilize on behalf of a better day. No, I agree. I think one of the things we're doing right now is mobilizing you and I at this very moment, mobilizing on behalf of a better day. I'm not saying we're being very successful or very effective, but at least in intention, this is what we're doing. But look what's not necessary. You and I don't have to hope we're sitting here talking to be able to sit here and talk. Hope is completely not required to engage the dilemmas that we're beginning to talk about now. If you require hope, you're importing it from elsewhere. Yeah. So, so hope is always a compromise of the present moment. Nobody hopes for the way it is. We hope for the way it isn't. Okay, so, so my orientation to life is to do everything I can to inhabit the way it is. Another episode that has definitely been one of my favorites because they are my heroes, but also a very strong reminder of something I stand strongly for was the conversation with the minimalists. And while the, you know, the documentary, The Minimalists has really affected my life very strongly, shaped my attitude, I didn't expect that the conversation would be so philosophical and, and deep in so many ways. And I found that to be quite enriching, especially on the sides of what minimalism really means. And does it really stop at the number of items you have in your household? And what makes us hoard so much? What makes us keep so many things? I found that to be quite a defining moment for me to reflect and revisit my approach to having a lighter life by becoming more, as they mentioned, a utilitarian, someone who really only keeps in his life things that bring him joy or, uh, or utility. A wonderful conversation in every possible way. As you head into a new year, you may want to revisit 251, not just for getting stuff out of your life, but perhaps getting concepts and self-limiting beliefs out of your life. Episode 251 with The Minimalists. Yeah, that's a great way to look at minimalism. It's a, a way to kind of help us get back to our roots, to get back to the nature. I mean, I think when you when you bring up these poor communities in the world, yeah, I mean, by, by definition of things, yes, they're not cluttering their lives, but aren't their lives cluttered with so many other things, though, with uh, cell phones and, and, and yeah, advertisement and this wanting? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, even if, uh, you know, take the, take the things out of it, minimalism is this philosophy that kind of helps us get back to those, those roots, to get back to that nature. Yeah. I mean, we see, in here, at least here in the United States, we see five to 10,000 advertisements a day. No way. Oh, my God. Yeah, and and that is, it's uh, it's it programs us, and like that that those ideas they seed in us, and they create these desires that uh, we never would have had otherwise. But yeah, it is it is fascinating how yeah, I've never I've never looked at it that way, but minimalism certainly can be a tool that people can use to get back to that natural state in a way. Yeah. So because I spend more time working with people who economically would be categorized as poor than I do working with people who maybe have too many luxury goods. Here's an aspect of minimalism that I think the philosophical side 
can really contribute to. So I'm just going to give you one example. One of my inner city students, we were in class in a small group and we were talking about dreams. And this is a young black man, about 17 years old. And he states what his dream is. And his dream is to be a mechanical engineer. And I thought that was an interesting answer. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this should be pretty easy to workshop because usually students might say something like a rapper or an actor. And it's kind of hard, right? Because mm. you don't want to contradict their ambition, but there's no clear, easy path for it. And so you got to be really delicate and nuanced with how you talk about it with them. But he says mechanical engineer. I'm thinking, oh, this should be pretty easy. And so I ask him, what's the hard part? And he says, the hard part is where I'm from. And I say, well, what do you mean? And he expresses to me a firm conviction that the number one reason he doesn't believe he can become a mechanical engineer is because of the neighborhood he has grown up in and that he still lives in and because of the life of his father who is now in jail because of a life of crime, right? And so here is someone that's having a really difficult time imagining him ever making it out of the hood and ever being able to fulfill his dream because he has a story going on that says, I can never do what my father did not achieve. I am destined for a life in jail like my dad. I can never be bigger and better than the neighborhood I grew up in. Now, that story is not his fault. That's a story that has been imposed upon him by the reality of his harsh circumstances, by cultural elements and so on. And in addition to that, there are aspects of that story that have some very strong sociological and economic arguments, right? That, that give him every reason to believe that. But when you're talking to someone like that, you don't have the luxury to sit back with a glass of wine and just say something that sounds virtuous. You've got to speak into this young man's life in a way that helps him unpack that baggage so that he can be able to create some options for himself without blaming himself for the challenging circumstances that he's in. Correct. And so we begin to have a conversation about what it means to have parents that live a certain way and what it does and does not say about you. We begin to have conversations about what it does and does not mean to grow up in a certain neighborhood. And we had to approach this sympathetically, understanding the things that are beyond his control, but also in a way that encourages him to believe in his possibilities, pointing him to the resources that he didn't know about, that his mentors never showed him because he doesn't have the mentors, right? And so this is just one example of how we can have baggage in the form of stories, in the form of self-defeating beliefs, in the form of self-condemnation, in the form of having people who told us you aren't anything and you'll never be anything. And that can be as powerful as the baggage that comes from having too many things. Mm. Oh, it's mm. so beautifully said. Early in the year, I was speaking at the Sharjah Entrepreneurship Forum, uh, a wonderful event. I mean, Sharjah in general is the sort of the cultural capital where books and culture is discussed quite often in the UAE. And so I was there. It was a lovely event. And we were sort of arranging for me to meet with some of the guests. And I have to admit, I was a bit struggling with time and it was you know, a very busy event with a lot of people that I know. And so I felt a little drained, but we had already arranged for me to meet with my next guest here on this episode, April Rani. April was sort of like, oh, we can do it tomorrow, but I didn't want to go tomorrow. So anyway, we found a tiny room that wasn't very properly air conditioned. So it was actually quite hot in there. 
And we started a conversation that we just could not stop. I mean, despite the fact that you may see a few drops of sweat on my forehead every now and then, I just couldn't stop chatting with April. We, we started from her defining moment when she lost her parents in an accident that really flipped her life upside down, something that I believe I can relate to very deeply. And we branched from there to all kinds of vulnerabilities and wisdom in a wonderful conversation that was, I think, early in the year, a very important reminder for me of the value of what I'm attempting to do. I mean, sometimes, even though I hope you don't notice it, I feel overwhelmed with all of the tasks I've assigned to myself, with all of the challenges that the world throws your way and all of the biases of the technology world and social media that perhaps does not always favor my kind of message to the world. And uh, when I spoke to April, I think she anchored me back into maximum focus on my on my mission. And I will say openly, because of April and so many others that have helped me this year, it's been a very effective year. Difficult as it may have been, I think I have never had a message spread as fast and wide as my message on artificial intelligence. So thanks for all of those that helped me. And uh, specifically uh, early in the year, uh, thanks to my conversation uh, with April Vinay, which was uh, episode 231, which was lovely, very wise in every possible way. Uh, maybe you'd have the time to revisit that. What I love is you're, you're just teeing up these wonderful... So I can look at the superpower and say, Mo, like this superpower is already quite strong for you because you're practicing it. And it's a, it's a practice you opted into. You could have done the planning and no, you made a choice to, to grow. And, but this is grooving yeah. this mental muscle. Yeah. And I just love, I love everything about what you just said because it's exactly what we're talking about. And one thing I didn't mention in here is that for this particular superpower, when people are like, how do we get started? I'm always like, the number one is travel. Mm. Travel gives you such a great template. Yeah. Because for most people, travel is a kind of adventure they pick. I'm going to choose to travel somewhere. And within that, I can have a lot of experiences that might feel scary. But I'm guessing the booking things last minute, not only empowering, really freeing. A total freedom. Total like just, freedom. and all of a sudden it's like you're, your lungs expand, your heart expands, you yeah. feel lighter. Yeah. Yeah. You do it, you do it a couple of times and you realize why was I worried about this? Yeah. Right. So one fun side note, this is more my personal history. Um, it was shortly after my parents died when I was, I was admittedly in the throes of grief and I was, I was having a really hard time. A little more context. Both my parents were teachers mm. and we didn't have a lot growing up. It wasn't about material possessions or money, but the two things we were allowed to spend money on were education and travel. They mm. were real. My dad was a cultural geographer. So, so he, stud <laughs> he studied maps and migratory patterns and, and cultural diversity was a huge theme growing up. But I bring this up because I was on the one hand dealing with, okay, I've lost them. I need to do something with, well, one, I have to be self-sufficient. I have to take care of myself. So I can't just like, just go do nothing. Mm. I have to build a career. But at the same time, I know I might die tomorrow. So it needs to be a career that makes sense to me and is, and is <laughs> yeah. contributing to society. But then also like, I need to do something that would make my parents proud because now yeah. like I have this, it's, I don't know if it's guilt or pride or who knows what, but that's a problem. And 
all sorts of other things, including some mental health challenges and just depression and, and whatnot. But I share this all because in between undergraduate and graduate school, when my mentors were saying, you need to go work at a consulting firm or a bank. And I was like, no, I don't. But what do I need to do? And I remember I was 21 when I, I wonder if, how I would feel if the tables were reversed, but I had some extended family members who were concerned about me. Hmm. And they were like, okay, you're not going to go do that. What are you going to do? And hmm. I was like, my plan is not to have a plan. And they oh, were like, yes. oh boy. Sounds 21. Oh boy. <laughs> exactly. Well, 21 with no parental oversight. <laughs> Right? Lots as of if, energy. As if there is ever parental True. oversight. True. Well, what was fascinating, and I know I'm taking a bit of a tangent here, but I, I hope it's helpful to at least some of the folks listening in. It was an interesting combo in my 20s where I had lots of ideas and energy. I've always had like abundant energy. Um, I had a very clear sense of how fragile life was, a kind of not a death wish, but I truly didn't think I had long to live. It was irrational, but like... Mm. And I had no parental accountability, meaning if I could figure out a way to do something, there was no, no, no one to tell to me, no. me, but, but I had to figure it out and I had to take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. And that was a really interesting mix because I was like, okay, my plan's not to have a plan, but I knew it was important, particularly my parents did expect me to go on to graduate school. They did expect me to contribute to society. They did not necessarily expect me. It wasn't about making a bunch of money and having a fancy title. It was contributing to the greater good. But I realized how little I knew about the world and the one, so education and travel. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I do know that I want to see more of the world and find a way to travel and find a way to understand how does the rest of the world live? Yeah. And so long story short, I spent four years without a permanent address, mm. with a backpack. This is pre-Airbnb, pre-smart. I didn't even have a mobile phone. Yeah. This was nothing. This was getting off the bus and having the grandma be like, you look interesting. You're a single young female. You'll stay with I me. I was just going to say, and you're not even, you don't even look like me with oh, a beard no. and a muscular No, I'm the bed. young blonde who's like, you must be lost. <laughs> you get lost. And actually, that's the, the, the intro to that chapter is the story of me in uh, rural Romania, shortly after the Iron Love Curtain Romania. comes down. Yes. Bukovina. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever been to Bukovina, mm-hmm. these painted monasteries backside yeah, of beyond yeah, yeah this was back when there were dirt roads they were not a unesco heritage site but i had read about them in my art history class and <laughs> i was going to find my way there so i get people single blonde fair-skinned what in the, the world she building. is yeah. she is clearly lost and mm. people would be like how can you travel on your own that must be frightening and scary what they didn't realize is what they saw as a liability being young and female and solo and foreign was my asset, greatest asset because grandmothers in particular across the board were like, you have to be lost here. Come in. Let me take care of you. Let me feed you. Let me show you around. I had families open their doors left, right and center precisely because I was solo and female. That's so Which is fascinating. Mm. But I bring this up because back to those four years um, to earn income, I researched and guided hiking and biking trips around the world. Got this job as a tour guide, which was so much Mm. fun, which gave me enough income not to pay a mortgage or raise a family, but plenty of income to go to. And exactly. So I did that for four (laughs) years. But back to your point about my routine was not having any idea when I woke up that morning where I would sleep that night. I knew where I was heading on my itinerary, but we'll figure it out. And I don't think I appreciated at that time because I was so focused on other things like the grieving and the, what am I going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. But I realize now that I was grooving that, that 
superpower. I was really getting comfortable with the not knowing, but learning to celebrate it. I got so excited about where might I be tonight? I don't know, but it's going to probably be, it was always cool. Even if it wasn't necessarily comfortable or luxurious, it was something new. It was Mm -hmm. something that taught me something, exposed me to something different. On October 13th this year, Slow Mo gave me the biggest gift it has ever given me. I was rushing through the streets of London. I was late for a board meeting and somehow life in a freakishly obvious way was delaying me so that I get to a specific street corner at a specific moment in time where I find someone approaching me from the other side, looking at me as if she knows me. And so I asked, I said, do we know each other? And she said, no, you don't know me, but I'm a friend of Carly's who's a common friend between us. And I follow your work. I love slow-mo. And I just wanted to say hi. And I was honored. So I said hi. And we chatted for a quick four or five minutes so that I get to know her quickly. And turns out that Hannah Lord, who is a therapist that specializes She really dedicates a lot of her work to understanding the depth of what her client needs in uh, in a way that uh, often involves sort of the alpha masculine type clients. I was doing the Love and Romance series at the time. I was running short of an episode that I needed very quickly where we speak about the masculine. We hadn't spoken about the man's view, if you want, of Love and Romance. Uh, So I said, come to my podcast. And uh, then we both rushed she had a client uh, that she also changed the direction to go to and i had my board meeting a few days later we uh, got together to record the episode episode number 268 and uh, i was blown away i mean i don't know if you noticed but i was in two words at, at the same time i was uh, listening attentively to what hannah had to say about love and relationships i was blown away by how much we agreed which in a way, sometimes controversial because, you know, my views of that is not uh, always very straightforward. But at the same time, I was really, what can I say, very attracted to Hannah. I found myself halfway through the podcast, might be up to you to find out what moment uh, that exactly was, telling myself clearly in my mind, oh God, please make her mine. Yeah, we had a very, very positive response for the podcast. And, you know, after we finished recording the bits that you didn't see where we chatted for a while more and I asked if she would like to stay in touch and she welcomed the idea. She said, yeah, let's have coffee when you're in London. I was in London literally four days later. And so around October 18th, we started to agree that we will go out for a coffee and continue to chat. And then I did something I've never done before. I asked her if she was single and she did something she's never done before and said yes, because she normally avoids that question from someone she doesn't really know well. So I said, so scrap the coffee. Can I please take you out on a date? Uh, We went on our first date on October 18th and I knew I found what I was looking for. I knew that for the longest time I've been looking for someone that really is a match for my views and values in life and who truly is intelligent, gentle, kind, loving in the way that Hannah is. So it wasn't long after uh, that we started dating. It wasn't long after that we decided to get married. And on December 17th, less than two months after our first date, we actually 
I got married. So thank you <laughs> for the slow-mo listeners. I always told you that slow-mo would bring me uh, this opportunity to meet those incredible humans to, that enrich my life in ways I never expected. I can tell you for sure I never expected to meet someone I love so dearly, someone who's adding so much to my life, someone I'm willing to commit to here on slow-mo. So thank you so much for that. Hannah is an incredible, wise, wise woman. So yeah, you may want to go back to episode number 268 and uh, look at it again to meet my wife, Hannah Lord. Tell me about your side. What, what was your biggest discovery? Oh, wow. That's quite a question because I've, uh, honestly, I've had so many. I don't know where to start. <laughs> oh, I time. think we have time, Hannah. <laughs> I think you're not letting me get away with this, are you, Ram? <laughs> if you want to, I can, but I don't think the, the, no, the no, no. will be happy about that. No, no, I'm more than happy to share. I think what was interesting for me uh, in the early days was how much we all project out, how much we project what we can't hold for ourselves and what we don't want to own for ourselves. And it's easiest to, to put on to somebody else Um our shadow material, if you like, and then using that shadow. And that's very, that's very Jungian thinking from Carl Jung. And, um, the shadow is the, it's the material that we can't hold and we banish to the unconscious because we don't want to look at it. And that's mm. maybe, that's often environmental. So maybe in my case, I was told never to show off. I was told not to get a big head, not to, I came into this world, you know, singing and dancing and like a little lovable lunatic wore my heart on my sleeve all the time. And I was always told to be quiet, that I was too much. That was, I was embarrassing myself. That wasn't, that wasn't okay. And that's from family and at school. And so you just learn like going back to that kind of data coding you're processing information all the time and you quickly adjust. Like we have these, fantastic minds that will quickly do a, a bit of a switch around and be like, okay, don't do that anymore. Do more yeah. of this. And quite often, if we, if there's a part of ourself, of our soul, our core nature, which is most on display when we come into the world as little kids, we're most ourselves when we're small infants. And I believe that children are so intelligent and we can learn so much from them. Um, I think we, yeah. there's far too much yeah, infantilizing that goes on. But quite often, if a part of our core nature is rejected, we will start to become, we won't just dumb it down, we'll become the direct opposite. And usually people who are very cold and unfeeling and guarded quite often have the most love to give. And that's why it's so painful for them. And it becomes their shadow material and it becomes fiercely defended. Um, and that was definitely my, that was my experience. And that's why it breaks my heart whenever I would, I'd get feedback from people that said like, oh, you're, so, you know, you're quite, you're very distant. You're very guarded. You're very cold because you, your soul knows. And it's like, no, I'm not. And it's there screaming inside. So I think that was an interesting realization that actually those parts of me are still alive. They're still in there, but it's learning to reintegrate them and learning that they're, they're okay. And that the early information that I received is old information. And that's not the, you know, getting it into the conscious mind, into the here and now of going, okay, well, but, but what would happen if I express myself like this now to mm. these people, to this person? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that takes us back to that idea of feminine masculine. I mean, that one of the most 
guarded sides of us is the feminine. It's like it's weak. It's not very, you know, uh, yeah. practical. If what if he sees me? What if he knows me? And you know, in my in my typical relationships, regardless of how feminine a woman appeared on the outside, when you give a woman space, more feminine would show up. So can can I can I just agree the definitions before we go? deeper into this yeah. because i think a lot of our uh, a lot of our listeners will may may not understand what what is feminine and masculine i mean what how do you define them my definition of feminine masculine has nothing to do with gender it's more about active the active qualities of the masculine the doing and the feminine qualities are the receptive, so the being. And that's why we live in a hyper masculine society because we're not okay with just being we fear it it's, we don't want to stay still. It feels unsafe. And so we're active, active, active. And that is irrespective of gender. That's everybody. And we are, as a as a collective, we're out of balance. And as individuals, we all feel out of balance as well. And that's a, that's a scary situation to be in, I think. So that's it. This is the very last thing I tell you at the end of 2023. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be your host once a week on an opportunity to slow down and meet such amazing people and create such amazing impact on my own personal life. Because you're listening to Slow Mo, if you didn't, I wouldn't come across those incredible nuggets of wisdom. And this year I wouldn't have come across love. For that, I am eternally grateful I ask you to slow down a bit more in 2024. 2024 is going to be a year that requires a lot of reflection and a lot of self-care, self-love, composure. It's a year where you need a circle of close people to you, close friends, but also close advisors, which I hope to be bringing a few uh, of those to your life uh, in 2024. We finished the Love and Romance series. We're going to go back to normal programming, if you want, uh, starting the year with two incredible episodes, Marissa Pierre and Africa Brooke, to try and set the tone for what it is that we can do during tough times, but also to honor ourselves in a good way. Whatever it is that you do for me here on Slow Mo, I ask you to help me grow this podcast, please. As you know, I don't monetize slow-mo. This is an effort to bring wisdom to the world as part of One Billion Happy. And I do that in an attempt to really spread a message of wisdom and happiness to uh, millions of people around the world. It takes me the same amount of effort, the same amount of resources to record any of the episodes that you hear. If you can help me make it reach tens or hundreds of thousands more, then the impact goes much further and it would be truly the biggest gift you can ever give me. So continue to rate this podcast highly on your podcast player, share it truly with a strong recommendation with people you have coffee with or people you're texting with on WhatsApp. Come subscribe to our YouTube channel, which has grown significantly this year, Official on YouTube. And please like the videos, subscribe, turn on the notifications so that you get the new episodes in video. And uh, all in all, just help me spread what the wisdom that you hear here. So if you, if you even just take one nugget of wisdom and give it to another person, I may not be able to know that you did that. 
because it won't show in my numbers, but it will make a difference to one human. And life is all about making a difference to one human at a time. I cannot thank you enough once again for the time that you've given me in 2023. The heartbeats, the precious heartbeats of your life that you spared for uh, you to visit me and my guests. It's been incredible for me to have that joy. It's been an honor for me to have the opportunity to have you listen to me. Thank you so much for your time and for your support. I ask you to slow down as always, because regardless of how fast this year is going to be, there will always be time. It will even be more important to slow down. I love you all for listening. I thank you all for your support and I will see you next year.